0: Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Independent Again, the founding partners of $18 billion plus IEQ Capital on growth, culture, and the luminous leap. It's a conversation with Alan Zaffron and Eric Harrison, co-chief executive officers and founding partners of IEQ Capital. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. It was May of 2008 when one of the biggest breakaway stories to hit the street emerged. A team of top Merrill advisors with some $2 billion in assets Left the Wirehouse to launch RIA Luminous Capital. This team of wealth management A listers included Mark Sear and David Ho, whom I had the privilege of interviewing on this series a few years back, and Robert Skinner and Alan Zafran. It was a leap that would galvanize the independent space, attracting the attention of Wirehouse advisors throughout the industry, piquing their curiosity, and demonstrating that there was indeed life outside the big brokerage firms. Then history was made in 2012, when the $5.5 billion Luminous sold to what was then First Republic Bank for an astounding $125 million. Yet the story didn't end there. It was 2019 when there would be another entry in the wealth management industry record books. After growing the business to some $17 billion, the team would leave the bank forming two separate independent firms, with Mark and David launching Evoke Capital and Robert and Alan at the helm of the newly founded IEQ Capital. Eric Harrison, a former private equity firm leader and First Republic veteran, who began working with Luminous Partners in 2013, would join them and together, the three, would serve as founding partners and co-CEOs of IEQ. It's an astounding growth story for IEQ, which started with some $8 billion in assets at inception and as of this recording, is managing in the vicinity of $18 billion. In this episode, Lewis Diamond welcomes Alan and Eric, two of the three co-CEOs of IEQ, to share their incredible journey. They discuss what life was like making the leap to independence in 2008, at a time when few would consider it. They share their unique perspective on their subsequent sale to First Republic and later departure. The two-time breakaways offer a deep dive into building a business the right way from the start, growing an independent firm, the importance of culture, creating an enduring enterprise, and much more. There's lots to discuss, so let's get to it.
1: Alan and Eric, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Lewis. It's great to be here.
1: Very good. Let's jump in. Let's start off with Alan here. Can you walk us through your background and how you became an advisor in the first place? And then we'll kick it over to Eric.
2: Sure, Lewis. I have two families. I have a family where I'm married with four kids ages 26, 24, 22, and 20. And my other family is what's now IEQ Capital, but it's really 32 years of being in the wealth management business. And I really, really fell into it. What happened was I was in college and I didn't know what to do uh, with a career and the cyber was going to New York. And I thought, what the heck, I'll try it, too. And everyone was doing investment banking. And I got sucked in at age 21 to being one of those individuals that was working for over 100 hours a week as an investment banking associate. And I greatly disliked it. But whenever I had a break, I really liked the fact that you saw the sales traders were having a great time on the trading floor and they're getting up by four in the afternoon East Coast time. And they were reading all about investing. And I got fascinated with investing. And I said, I'm on the wrong side of the business. So I went to business school. And I had a business class fortunate to get a job offer from Goldman Sachs in their private client group in Los Angeles, California, which is where I'm from. And so that launched my career into wealth management completely inadvertently. And I haven't looked back. I've been very fortunate to be in what has proven to be a personally and professionally rewarding career.
1: There you go. Hopefully a better return on your time, too, in wealth management versus the 100-hour grind of investment banking.
2: <laughs> exactly.
3: How about you, Eric? Well, I have a, uh, a different story, different background. I grew up in Golden, Colorado, a home of Coors Beer, and went to a high school where about 80% of the school went to the factory and 20% uh, went to college. So it was a pretty humble beginning, and I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. And after wandering around in the wilderness a little while, I uh, ended up Spending a couple of years at Hewlett-Packard, and they kind of shaped my investing desires. And I went back to business school and uh, UCLA and, um, and then got into venture capital. Spent about nine years there, ultimately a partner over at Crosspoint, one of the great firms that uh, all the folks retired in the uh, top of the cycle at end of 99. And then uh, co-founded a private equity firm by the name of uh, GI Partners and was one of the, the senior partners there. That's been a very good run, has probably $40 billion under uh, management now. I stayed the first, oh, eight and a half years or so, and then was lucky enough to get invited into the former company that we had, Luminous Capital. And I was a client of uh, Alan and team, and I was invited to come in and help start the uh, Alts business and and be the CEO of that enterprise. And that was the beginning of my wealth management experience, and it's uh, been a wonderful career and Interestingly, I liked it better than, than either venture or private equity. I it think it's very fast moving and it's just been a joy to work in, in the field and then with Alan and, and our partners, just Rob and just a great group.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. And also it's fascinating to be able to combine your skill set from the private equity and venture world and bring it bring that discipline into Luminous and then First Republic and then IEQ. When we talk about the move from we'll direct it towards Alan, the move from Goldman to Merrill, at the time, Merrill Peabank, their their ultra high net worth business in 1997. So can you talk a little bit about the motives behind the GS to ML move and why your team made it?
2: Yeah, it's quite a long time ago. I started at Goldman Sachs in 1990 and was there for seven years. And there are really two primary factors that led us to ultimately leave Goldman Sachs and move to Merrill Lynch. One was a little bit more self-centered in that Myself and my partners were part of the youngest cohort in a team full of much older advisors. And the environment there didn't feel very collaborative. It felt like you were competing amongst one another, amongst all the advisors. And it's not always a really welcoming environment when you feel like uh, your competition is sitting five feet from you. And that was a bit unsettling. But the greater driver, frankly, was as we were there for a while, myself and several of my partners, my teammates felt that. We weren't necessarily as client-centric as we should have been. Back in 1997, we thought it was revolutionary that we could go to Merrill Lynch where there was an array of outside money managers from a variety of prominent buy-side firms, and we thought it was demonstrably uh, better than sitting with offerings solely from one firm. And so that was the great motivation, a combination of trying to find a more collaborative environment coupled with trying to find a better platform for which clients could invest.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And it's common, I think, for many wirehouse teams, and that's where you became with, with Merrill, to feel like that the platform is good enough. You, you have to certainly do have open architecture to an extent, but I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about in this interview is say more of the true open architecture that you're able to access in the RIA channel. And that's perhaps a good segue to the next question. Also for Alan, talking about the motivations behind launching Luminous Capital in um, really right during the financial crisis times, out of Merrill Private Wealth. So what happened at the time that motivated you to consider launching the RIA?
2: There are a number of factors to get it, leading us to leave Merrill Lynch in 2008 and create an independent RIA known as Luminous Capital. And if you get down to it again, we're going to start with first and foremost, albeit Merrill Lynch might have been a superior or wider array of investment alternatives than what Goldman Sachs had offered. As we learned more and more about the investment industry, we recognized we still had limitations with respect to the offerings we could afford to our clients. And where it became very pronounced, there are examples where either we wanted to use a superior performing mutual fund, to one that was accepted on the Merrill Lynch platform, and Merrill Lynch would not allow us to do so. I sort of joke, it took me 18 years out of business school to become an entrepreneur and realize that a great motivational tool for myself and my colleagues and partners was actually equity ownership, and it's one thing to be a paid employee and being um, distracted by a variety of larger corporate objectives tied to lending, tied to doing canned, rote financial plans that, frankly, weren't bespoke and customized. And probably the last driving factor was my partners and I at the time finally felt that the technology tools and systems that would enable us to be able to run a business effectively, to have databases back then, to be able to provide performance reporting in a transparent and easy to understand fashion, we finally felt it was kind of there. And those were really the driving factors behind ultimately leaving Merrill Lynch and trying to become really an entrepreneur business owner, which now I look at today, I realize it was was a fabulous decision, but it was really driven by a lack of contentment with what the larger firms were offering our clients.
1: I hear you there. And what did the business look like when you transitioned?
2: Well, when we left (laughs) Merrill Lynch in 2008, we were managing a little less than $2 billion in assets under management for probably something on the order of a couple hundred families, perhaps a little less than that. What we learned very quickly is being entrepreneurs resonated with high net worth families. They actually love the fact that we're taking calculated business risks and we could really relate with the risks they took in their own respective careers. And conversely, they really appreciate the fact that we're business builders, as well as truly being focused on one business, taking care of the client. And what was really demonstrable was it accelerated our business growth meaningfully. So what we started with was a little less than $2 billion, grew in four and a half years to just under $6 billion.
1: You had an incredible business at that time. And- your transition predated my time in the industry personally, but I remember coming into learning about the breakaway segment. and it was luminous was kind of the case study for how a sophisticated wirehouse team could launch an RIA and give up a lot by by leaving, deferred compensation, all the support, et cetera, and really become an RIA before you had all these. Really compelling firms leaving and and breaking away. So, you were kind of the trendsetters for the breakaway space. So, certainly a lot of press about that. Anyone wants to take a look. But then I think what brought Luminous back into the forefront of everyone's memories was the fact that you ended up selling to First Republic for a very large multiple. But before that, I think another thing that struck me about your move to launch Luminous was you did it at a time before there were platform providers. It was before. Dynasty was launched, before Sanctuary, before Live Oak Bank, before really the custodians were were doing what they're doing now. So you really kind of went at it alone without a lot of the ecosystem that was developed today. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like launching into the great unknown, kind of just doing it yourselves and what motivated you to take that extremely entrepreneurial approach?
3: Alan, you should uh, take that question as well. I joined about three or four months after you all got started. So
2: you have all the lore of Of the uh, pre-founding of Luminous? You know, Lewis, I don't think actually your listeners might appreciate just how incredibly difficult it was to launch Luminous Capital in 2008. California labor law said we could not work in another business while we were employed with Merrill Lynch. And so that relegated us to doing all sorts of planning for the business prior to literally 6 a.m. Pacific time during weekdays or after 4 p.m. Pacific time of weekdays and weekends. And so I can tell you we had countless conference calls with potential custodians, with potential research providers, with potential software providers, with real estate agents at early morning hours or late in the evenings while still doing our day job. And it took, and I'm not exaggerating, 18 months from the time that we concluded we wanted to leave Merrill Lynch to the time that we actually launched Luminous Capital And I think that's because we built the firm thoughtfully and carefully and we were exceptionally concerned that we didn't want to do anything that broke acceptable labor laws. We wanted to ensure that we got all the pieces in place before we launched into an independent firm. And I think that's critical to understand how incredibly challenging it is. All the aspects of running a business, if you're going to do it right, it takes methodical thought and a lot of attention to detail in a very careful way. So I would say we worked really hard to put it together. And I think that had to do with why we also had such a successful launch that we had anticipated potential client concerns. Imagine in 2008, you're telling your client, you've been at Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch with me for 10, 15, 18 years. And I want you to take a risk on me. I'm going to launch this company called Luminous Capital. You've never heard of it before. It doesn't have a trillion or $2 trillion of assets. We might have a couple billion. And trying to get clients comfortable to bet on you, you had to be prepared to leave. So as one example, we created the why document, W-H-Y question mark. And what we did is we wrote up in summary paragraphs roughly 10 or 12 questions that we anticipated Clients would ask, and we already had those questions answered so that we were trying to set the table and the agenda to explain what was transpiring, what motivated us, what potential risks were entailed, but most importantly, what were the benefits for clients of going to an independent, objective fiduciary as opposed to working in a suitability standard at a broker-dealer where there are a lot of conflicts of interest entailed in serving their interests. And I think that why document coupled with our thoughtfulness around the move uh, led a lot to our ability to be successful right out of the box.
1: I think that's amazing advice. We recommend that any advisor, even if they're going from what some would say is more of a lateral move, from UBS to Morgan Stanley, that they do something similar as well. And projecting what's in it for the client. There's a lot that's in it for a team to consider a move, but it's a little bit less obvious for the client. So being really clear and concise with that is I think very smart and just helps to really confirm your thinking. You know, Lewis,
2: I'd say what's nice about it is it's it's got two benefits. On the one hand, you're clearly putting yourself in your client's shoes and you're being empathetic. And it really forces you to think through what does the client care about? On the other hand, it also forces you as a businessman or woman to think through critically, what are the tools and services and products and platforms that you need to really serve your client as a fiduciary? And so that exercise works well because it forces you to think through how are you going to be best in class as a fiduciary for your client?
1: Mm-hmm. And, and let me ask you, Alan, just thinking back and you might not even remember because a long time ago, what was your who was your kind of like North Star or who is your role model or your who kind of sparked the idea of going into the RIA channel at that time? Because you had far fewer, we'll say, role models or idols to look up to than you might today. And certainly a lot of folks will, will look at the Luminous launch as that. But then who did you look at and say, you know what, we can do this. And there is a better way because we're seeing XYZ is doing this already.
2: Well, first of all, I like the fact you keep referring to me as long time ago. I must be father time here, 32 years in the industry. But you know, it's a combination of a few role models. What I can say is A lot of alumni from Goldman Sachs, if you look over time, have actually rolled out into interesting career paths in the financial services industry and other sectors. And so there were a few individuals who had given me some inspiration in their own entrepreneurial steps, but probably amongst the most influential people was probably my father. My father thought I'd rather be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. He's an engineer and didn't really think that much about financial advisory But got very excited when he said, you can actually take the boat on its own journey, and you can uh, lead it where you want with leadership and teaching others and being a mentor. And he got me very excited about having the courage to take the next step. And so I'd actually say, oddly enough, my father was probably my largest motivational North Star to go over the hump and get to the independent RIA side.
1: I love it. That's a very good answer. I was thinking like Warren Buffett or someone like that, but your father is the first role model you have, so may as well... May as well lean on that. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Hopefully you get to share in the in the later rewards. And again, another good bridge to the next question. So like I mentioned before, many folks have heard of the kind of the, the rock star stature of Luminous because of the acquisition. At the time of sale, it was really the first acquisition, first major external um, hire or transaction that First Republic Investment Management completed. It put it on the radar from a, sleepy bank brokerage to the heights that it was before its um, most recent demise. But it was most importantly proof of concept that a major breakaway team could go roll up their sleeves, do the hard work of building an RIA, but still reap the financial rewards on the other end. So in other words, how to reconcile not taking a big deal from a Morgan Stanley or a UBS and instead betting on yourself and building something really special that had enterprise value. So in 2012, into 2012, at the time, 5.9 billion AUM Luminous sold to First Republic for a reported $125 million. So you don't have to confirm the details of the transaction, but can you talk about the why behind the transaction? And maybe let's start with Eric, since you've been quiet for a little while here. This was definitely when you were part of the business. So talking about the why behind the Luminous sale to First Republic, then Alan, if you have anything to add to take the mic from him
3: it's a very interesting question. We struggled with it. I'll be honest, as the business was progressing, it was doing very well. And it's never obvious when to quote unquote sell. We were young people. We weren't ready to retire. There were plenty of benefits of being independent, but we started having conversations about, is there a point where you're too big to be able to sell to a financial partner other than one of the major banks? And we preferred not to go back To one of the major banks because the business models were just different. We didn't want to go right back into the belly of the beast, so to speak. First Republic presented a very interesting alternative, kind of a hybrid. They were a bank, but they had a nascent wealth management presence at the time, and they had never done alternative investments. So the fit was pretty specific. It was that we could move over and actually launch their alternative investment business and be roughly 20% of their entire wealth management practice. And that meant that we were effectively left alone for the first five years. And during those five years, it actually didn't feel tremendously different than being independent. We were given quite a lot of autonomy, and it was a terrific place to be until the bank started bringing in many other teams, and it just rapidly changed as it went from, call it, $20 billion in wealth management to $200 billion in wealth management which happened over a, I don't know, five-year period of time.
2: You know, Lewis, yes, why the transaction? And I, I think there's a couple, there's three other factors. As a practical matter, whereas coming from Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch, my partners and I had a very investment-centric focus on the clients, we really lacked elegant solutions with respect to banking, lending, and trust services. And so we recognized all things equal, we probably needed a better mechanism to Enable our families to access efficient banking, lending, trust services. Ultimately, though, the why came down to could we find a cultural fit? I can't emphasize this enough for anyone listening. No matter what you do or where you go, if you don't like the people beside you and you don't enjoy the environment and you don't think you're working in the same context, then it's a difficult place to be. And what was really fabulous about First Republic, they really were all about the client. And one of my The funniest things I remember is as we were entertaining working with them, we had a meeting and there were four of us in the room and there were six of them on the other side of the table. And they continued to ask questions of us. And we kept pushing back saying, we don't know. We'll have to get back to you. We're not sure how the clients would think about it. And we walked out of that meeting with First Republic thinking there's no way they'll get a deal done with us because every question they asked, we pushed back and refused to answer. What we learned in subsequent conversations with the management of First Republic they absolutely loved the fact that we were pushing back, trying to figure out what they were proposing would fit with clients. And they knew therefore we'd be a good cultural fit. And I think that was what largely led to our ability to actually be lucky enough to be acquired by First Republic Bank, which was a fabulous client-centric environment. And that's why we flourished there because we both saw the world the same way. So it was we didn't need trust in lending services, but we had a culture that really was all about the client. And That made a world of difference for the better.
1: Yeah. And did you and the partners have any fear of selling to a bank? You worked for for major banks and banks have a certain connotation, especially in the context of mergers and acquisitions. So did you have any consternation or heartburn about selling to a bank?
3: There was consternation. (laughs) One of our partners, I don't know that we need to point out which one, actually voted no. And I think the thinking was that, you know, he'd spent over a decade at a bank and knew that no matter how different First Republic might be as a bank, it was still a bank. It would be subject to a lot of uh, corporate policies that might not be the way that our team would want to manage money. And I think it was a fairly challenging set of discussions to get to yes. The other thing that we probably undervalued at the time that we sold was how much fun it is to be an entrepreneur to be an owner, to be able to actually hire a team without permission of your boss and expand services and invest in technology. All the things that you would do if you actually owned your own business, you really can't do once you're part of any bank. And First Republic is as good a bank as there is on the planet. But the fact is that we we were owned. And once you're owned, you are subject to all kinds of budgetary and policy constraints. And it becomes really a different environment for your soul, your psyche. And and I would argue eventually for the, for the clients, you know, they lost investment opportunity over time.
1: Folks are familiar with your story yet again, because in 2019, the team once known as luminous capital made two simultaneous moves by launching IEQ capital. And then your once partners, um, Mark and David launched Evoke Wealth, and we had Mark and David on the show a couple of years ago. Curious, though, to hear what motivated you all to leave First Republic. I think you've hinted at some of this, but uh, maybe, Eric, if there's anything to elaborate on.
3: The most specific thing, and it was done very open kimono with respect to our bosses, there was a fundamental tipping point when First Republic became a large bank. And at that point, they brought in, there was a moment where they had to take a pause and hire literally 200 outside compliance officers that cleared a whole floor in San Francisco, made it available solely for new compliance folks. And they brought in a chief compliance officer that was a good person just following the rules. But one of those rules is the Bank Act. And it says each client has access to every investment opportunity offered by the bank if they're qualified. So again, we do all qualified purchaser alternative investments And yet we were about 90, 95% of the capacity of each one of these funds. And the bank basically said, we can't do that. We got to open that up to everybody else in the bank. And yet we were doing all the work to source these investments, diligence them, negotiate fund terms, negotiate fee breaks. And we were going to be getting a far less sizable portion of the allocation. And that's the straw that broke the camel's back. So that, that was literally the moment when it just made sense to Think about
2: the next chapter. Lewis, I just want to add, I think to some degree, and this is true for Mark and David at Evoke as well, we here at IEQ Capital, I think we're entrepreneurs at heart. And in a way, no matter what the bank was capable of doing, and I think they went out of the way to accommodate us as best as they possibly could in this first rate uh, management team and first rate organization, it just still was a challenge. And the the way it manifested, we wanted to create some form of equity compensation amongst our um, team. And the only mechanism really that could get worked out was effectively what worked out to pseudo equity in the form of bonuses that was ordinary income with quarterly or annual amounts. And it just looked like a bonus. It wasn't really equity ownership in what we were doing. And I think that also just affected us because having had the positive experiences as equity owners once before at Luminous Capital, we actually recognized the value of individuals walking around with pride of ownership, but monetarily, but much more importantly, the way they act. So here at IEQ Capital, every individual across the board, including administrative, operational people, everybody owns equity. And it just outright changes mindset and it changes behavior. And it changes the way in which clients interact with us. And I just I think no matter what we did within the bank, we realized we didn't quite have that same esprit de corps that we were going to get by once again being entrepreneurial and equity owners. And I think that in the end, coupled with the whatever the challenges were in putting together alternative investments or bank act rules, I think that was really the driving motivational factor to once again create another RIA, in this case, IEQ capital?
3: Let me just say just a moment to answer. It's a terrific answer. It's purpose. When people have equity, sure, there's ultimately economic remuneration that comes their way eventually when there's some event. But people feel differently about their job. It is purpose. And purpose also changes work ethic. There's just a, a very different orientation to the job, especially for young people. You know, this is a, a job for young people, and we here at IEQ have a significant number of people under the age of 30, and they want to believe in something. And I think that having a journey that we are on together is remarkably fun, but it's also really important for the stability of a franchise.
1: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It sounds like what you're describing is a feeling of incongruence. We hear that often. That term is used pretty frequently by folks breaking away, regardless of the merits of the platform and the quality of the people. There sometimes becomes a point where your goals are incongruent with what can be accomplished within a captive environment. Any regrets in selling to First Republic at the time and then thinking about the brain damage of going and launching the business again as an RIA? Any regrets about them as a partner or, or selling in general?
2: Uh, for me, absolutely none. I think life is a series of learning experiences. I think our experience at First Republic was terrific. And I also think. I know this will sound funny. It bought us time to reflect on what we did well in our first RIA at Luminous Capital and allowed us to recognize what we might want to do differently with our second approach at being an RIA. So fabulous experience, great uh, organization to be there, made great relationships and bought ourselves time and thoughtfulness to think through how to build an even better mousetrap the second time around.
3: I agree with Alan, but I do have one regret. We misunderwrote one aspect of of First Republic, and it was fairly significant, and we we got it dead wrong. We thought that because 1 in 10, or I think it was all all the way up to 2 in 10, 10 millionaires in California had their deposits at First Republic but did not have wealth management at First Republic, we thought there'd be a lot of synergy with us arriving and be able to work with folks that had big deposits and therefore presumably a fair amount of wealth and convert them to being wealth management clients of the bank. And in fact, the policies were different. They were, it's it's a bank led organization and the bankers were the center of the sun and they had the ability to pick their wealth management partner and you were actually prevented from calling on folks that were were in your backyard that were known to have money that you would like to prospect, but you kind of had to get permission from the banker that had the depository relationship To be able to solicit their interest and that was rather shocking and that was uh that was not ideal so that was that was a regret
1: yeah that makes sense and with hindsight that uh i certainly get that so what was it like building an ria this go around how are things different obviously you'd kind of done this before so a little bit less of a learning curve but what kind of resources or platforms or outsourcing solutions were you able to access this go around that were different, or put another way, what had evolved around you in the years that you sold Luminous to First Republic and worked there, and then the launch of the business prior to that, uh, Louis.
2: I'm going to laugh because you can't get around how hard it is to get this done. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's so true. So if uh, if you recall, I told you it took 18 months of weeknights and weekends to build Luminous Capital from 2007 to you know eight. It took us, and I'm not exaggerating, 17 months of weeknights and weekends. From the moment we decided we were going to leave First Republic in early 2008 until we launched at the end of May of 2018, we launched in May of 2019, 17 months. We were even more emphatic because, in effect, we had more to lose and we were going to affect more clients' lives because we were a bigger business. More emphatic about doing the right thing, not breaking any rules or protocols being very intentional with respect to how we were going to build the business, which custodians we wanted, what research, what software platforms, what alternative investment accounting mechanisms we wanted to utilize. But also, I'll tell you this time, we actually consciously spent more time upfront thinking through what was going to be our culture, what was going to define who we were going to be going forward. We actually employed a coach, if you will, someone who specializes on getting the best performance out of Employees. And we were very thoughtful with respect to thinking through the kind of environment in which we would allow, particularly the younger employees, not just to be equity owners, but to learn and grow and flourish in the new environment. And so, again, in the event anyone really wants to become their own independent RAA, the more time you spend in the back end without cutting corners, the bigger the payoff on the other end. But it is a long journey. To get there. Let me add
3: a couple of things to Alan's answer. I agree entirely with his sentiment. I'll take this more from a private equity perspective. The second time around, I think we invested more thought and more money in legal and in cap table. And what I mean by that is we had a business that was worth a fair amount of money while at First Republic. And yet we decided, which was really against the advice of our legal counsel, to start by offering everybody a zero pre-money valuation. And what that means is that the thinking was that because the business was worth a lot of money, we could have given people profits, interests above certain threshold of value on day one. And we thought about it and we said, well, but if we do that, it's going to create two tiers of people. It's going to create founders who share dollar zero. And it's going to create the rest of the team that share later on. And yet we're all taking this plunge on the same day at the same time. And it didn't feel right. And we thought, okay, let's also figure out, should we be giving 5% to the team, 10%? We ended up with 25%. And that's a significant number. But particularly when it's dollar zero sharing, it made for a level of being in one boat together in a way that was extremely important. There's lots of other issues with respect to should you have vesting on that stock? We concluded, do not allow the stock to vest, which is probably an unusual decision. But the thinking is, we want this business to be sustainable. And then we want to think about uh, generational transformation, which we can get into later. But we thought about this from a 20-year landscape perspective. This is our last journey. And Alan and, and my last rodeo, and I think it's important that we uh, we set it up for the benefit of the clients to have stability and for our team to be able to take over client relationships pretty seamlessly.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, even though it sounds like maybe you didn't save any time in building IEQ than you did in launching Luminous, that you're able to build a much better business. You had the lessons learned from round one. The business was also much larger and more complex. But that even if you you, my guess is you probably could have built it much faster if you didn't think through a lot of the major strategic items that folks sometimes just don't really know to think about or there's so many other competing priorities when thinking about breaking away that kind of gets lost in the shuffle but it sounds like your premise was let's build the house the right way and then that's what's going to help us build the best possible firm and maximize its value
2: lewis this is these businesses are service businesses so other than the computers and the phones it's just people what we realized the second time around was you got to invest in the people. You got to invest in the culture. If you put together a system that you think will be harmonious and collaborative, it's overwhelmingly positive. And not that we did anything wrong the first time with Luminous, but we wanted to make sure we went out of our way to get buy-in from every individual top to bottom from beginning with the same shared vision of a long-lasting client-centric business going forward Equity is a tremendous motivator, but it's also a way to let everybody realize they're all together. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge differentiator.
3: One more item to add to Alan's answer that speaks to this importance of people and culture. At IEQ, we have a quarterly town hall. And that town hall is literally the identical information we present at the board meeting. It is incredibly transparent, and we go department by department by department, And it has maybe three or four purposes. The first is to call out people that are doing really important things that don't necessarily get to have the spotlight, you know, shined on them. The second is it reminds everybody that this is a living, breathing organism and it's growing and changing and evolving. And you may know your job pretty well, but without these these quarterly meetings, you don't really remember just how much everybody else is doing. So it kind of reconfirms that there's a village. And then the third thing it does is make people proud. It allows you to show what's happened. We didn't have a DEI committee in our in our last go around at, at Luminous. You know, here we're talking about very carefully uh, bringing in people that represent diversity and talent from different organizations, not just straight out of school. And I think we're we're trying to really build a company. It's very different than having a an umbrella over a series of franchisees where. Each producer has their own handful of people that work for them, and you share corporate services. It's a very different vision.
1: Yeah, that's where we'll take the conversation next, is talking about the, both the client and the advisor-facing value proposition of IEQ. So can you, just for perspective, share with the audience, what did the business look like as far as headcount and assets when you launched IEQ back in 2019?
2: Sure. When we launched IEQ, we had at the time, as you're aware, uh, split into two independent businesses. There Evoke Wealth that went uh, into Los Angeles. The business here in, uh, that we initiated uh, predominantly in Northern California with also a Los Angeles presence, roughly $8 billion of uh, billable assets under management for roughly 500 families. And what we really were able to do between ourselves and, and frankly, Evoke as well was because I think we were regarded as good fiduciaries, the vast preponderance of the client relationships that we wish to have come with us, in fact, did so. And so we were very fortunate with that regard.
1: One more piece to the answer. We had 42 people on day one. Got it. That's helpful. And then how about today? Because I know a major part of your value proposition and just what makes such an impressive company is your incredible growth, especially organically. So today, as we're recording in, say, the end of the first quarter of 2023, approximately, what's, what does a business look like?
3: We have uh, 130 total employees, and that's now one additional office in Newport Beach. We're on the cusp of opening up a couple of others elsewhere in the country. So we're on the dawn of an expansion to other key markets around the country. We've got about a 1,000 families, some of whom are these are kind of starter situations where they're Maybe one level below a managing director at a um, private equity firm or venture capital firm or real estate fund, where uh, they, they don't have a lot of money today, but they're sitting in the right chair and they will over time. So that thousand families is is probably overstated in terms of the number that are full service families by probably close to fifty percent. In terms of the organization, we have forty five people. That contribute to the alternative investment uh, research team. So it is, I believe, one of the very biggest that we would see anywhere in the country. We have full head office, so that comes with a a legal officer, managing director level estate planning, CFO, president, chief of people, chief of client services, and uh, head of business development, and then all of the client facing partners. And we've got about 25 in the middle that are senior level people that actually manage relationships, but did not necessarily bring in those accounts initially.
2: And uh, at this point, we are a little over $1818 billion of billable assets under management.
1: It's absolutely incredible to have grown more than doubling the business, at least on a AUM basis, and almost triple as far as headcount in the short couple of years, especially through, through the pandemic. So I'd love to talk about why that is. Let's talk a little bit about the value proposition. I know part of IEQ's value prop to clients and advisors is your tech forward experience, especially being in Silicon Valley. I know technology is very important, but what do you mean by this? Because my understanding was most RIAs are just using the custodian's technology and then bolting on Adapar and Salesforce and somewhat similar components. So how can technology actually be a differentiator for an RIA?
3: Well, let me take that, Louis. We have the great uh, Dean Horwitz. Dean is not, he's one of many people that are in uh, the infrastructure and technology team. We have a remarkable group, but I'm going to credit Dean a lot with being sort of chief architect of technology. So he sat in an advisor chair for about five years, who's our first hire at Luminous. And today he's our president. The thing that is unique about him is that he understands the pain points of an advisor. And yet, really, his core gift is process, procedure, technology, and implementation. And he's built a team around him that's quite sizable. We have about 25 people that touch elements of the infrastructure and the tech team, including programmers. And one of the things that you can look at is just what can you do with technology? Forget defining it. What can you do? Uh, I'll give you three items that I think are quite impressive that we certainly couldn't do at Luminous and today we can do. You can hit a button and produce a thousand household performance reports. There are a few, a very few, that need specific customization, a page inserted, but they're very much auto-generated. We do 15,000 subdocs a year. We do this with a team of five people. You could not do that without technology. And the last is, people want an experience. They want to be able to see their performance on their phone, on an iPad and see it fully integrated in real time through yesterday, liquids and illiquids, done by sub-asset classes. And that all gets done in a seamless way. Uh, We could keep going on with K1 generations. It's a big pain point for advisors generally. You know, you've got a lot of folks that are in a variety of alternative investments that produces a K1. Chasing the K1s down in the last 10 days before taxes are due is just super stressful on the team. So we've actually created a portal Whereby these automatically get uploaded, and all of the accountants that represent the households can log into this in a secure way such that they have an ability to download all the K1s without us individually rounding them up, sending them over, and then finding that we're missing one or two or three and having to do it again. So these are the various things that have been done. These are among many, many things, and Dean and team are updating this uh, technology literally every quarter. We have a big budget for investing
2: in technology. Hey, Lewis, just sometimes it doesn't take more than an iPhone and a smile. So what I mean by that is when you have one core purpose to provide thoughtful investment advice to families consistent with their broader estate plans and tax situations and income needs and risk tolerance and all those parameters, why wouldn't you enable an advisor to, to generate a three to five minute video clip as often as they wish, typically quarterly, but it could be whenever a seminal event happens. And as long as it is compliance approved, you enable that advisor immediately send out that video to all the clients they touch, all the prospective clients they touch, all the centers of influence, CPAs and estate planners and real estate brokers and divorce attorneys and anybody else that they generate business from. So Again, thinking as an owner-operator, why wouldn't I want to enable my client-facing personnel to real-time convey important investment themes, ideas, strategies that impact their clients' lives when it's timely? When you're at a large firm, you're probably blocked by a lot of these bureaucratic issues. Whereas here, if it's actually in the client's best interest, why wouldn't you want to give clients more touch points? And by virtue of doing this, You actually eliminate a lot of the unnecessary traffic back and forth. You eliminate the need for the rote mechanical quarterly meeting, and you get much more engaged strategic conversations when they're needed. Otherwise, you free up the advisor's time to do what they do best, give thoughtful advice, find new investments, or find new prospective clients. So everything that Dean Horowitz built, and even just more broadly, an iPhone and a smile, will get you a long way as long as you recognize what your core business is and you build the business to do the job as a fiduciary advisor. It's that simple. I want to add just one more
3: point to Alan's summary. With respect to technology, there are many things that can touch a client and help a client, and they're not always obvious. We never figured this out under the luminous days, and I think many other RIAs probably don't do what I'm about to say, but I think it's very valuable. So imagine the firm that does offer alternative investments, which we do. And imagine over time, a client might end up with half a dozen of them in their portfolio. They'll often get confused or vague on which investment represented what strategy. And they make a they, they They're very focused at the time of the investment decision, But it gets vaguer and vaguer uh, and just fades into just a portfolio summary of numbers over time. What we've done is break each individual investment into storyboards. So along the journey of being invested in a fund, call it a multifamily apartment manager, maybe they have 35 buildings. Let's imagine they sell a couple of buildings in year three. We'll actually put a little story out. It shows the picture of the couple buildings, then reminds people when they were invested in, reminds people what the exit was, and gives people a little summary of what was the value added along the way. That's an example of where technology really supports, to the benefit of clients, the investment experience.
1: Yeah, that, I would say so. It seems almost like everyone has access to like maybe the major building blocks of a tech stack, the CRM, the performance reporting, the financial planning tool. But you really took a walk in the client's shoes and said, what is it that I would want to know as a client, and then being advisors yourselves as well, what can we do to take the friction away from us being as efficient and effective as possible? So that makes sense. And I think that's where you said 25 folks and your scale coming in to build upon what's available to customize the technology experience to your specific client base. Well said. Let's talk a little bit about the private investments. I know that's a major part of the value proposition. You mentioned um, an example. Let's talk about that. I know you talk about having a network that gives IEQ clients access to exclusive privates. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on this and maybe some examples?
2: Well, sure. Given I'm the old guy here, 32 years in the business for me, 23 years for my co-CEO, Rob Skinner and 15 years for my uh, co CEO Eric, in addition to his private equity and venture capital background, that buys a lot of relationships with a number of private equity, venture capital, real estate, and credit managers. That's the start of the process. The reality is it's much deeper than that. So, what happens is by virtue of investing large dollar amounts in funds, so let's say that's go back to that apartment fund. We generally don't want to invest in a vehicle unless our clients collectively can put probably at least $100 million into an alternative investment vehicle like a real estate fund. But in order to do so, we're not going to take the rack rate terms on fees. We might not accept the fact that there's four key men for the fund to blow up. We might say there's only one key man. We might even dictate certain limitations in the way in which the manager invests. But when that gets done, we also want to see it on the LP advisory committee. So because we're one of the three or largest investors in a strategy, we will have separate conversations with those other two or three institutional investors. And we'll start off by saying, well, what do you think about this uh, apartment manager? And we get their opinion. The next question is, well, who are the other apartment managers across the country you like? And do you think we should be talking to them and we'll get an introduction? Then we'll say, well, in addition to apartment managers or the other real estate sectors you like, what do you like and who are the managers like and why? And then we'll get an introduction to those managers. Then we'll say, gosh, you know, in addition to real estate, are there other asset classes you like? GP stakes, floating rate credit, self storage units, secondaries, private equity, whatever it is. And we are inundated between those LP advisory committee relationship driven referrals. And the fact that we have over a hundred client families, where the underlying family comes, the money was created by a GP of a private equity, venture capital, real estate, or credit firm, we're inundated with investment opportunities. Our challenge isn't to finding the deal flow. Our challenge is figuring out which strategies, which management teams are chasing the opportunity with a proper amount of money, targeting a highly attractive, inefficient asset class. That's our challenge. Then networking the opportunities is far from our challenge.
1: How's that different than when you're at Merrill or Goldman or even at First Republic? I mean, all those firms have very large alternative investment platforms. Obviously, they're major institutions and also have large networks. So how's it different?
2: The biggest differentiator is we think about it this way. When we want to go after an opportunity, even if there's, it's really driven by what's the theme we think we want to invest in, when we actually look at with whom we want to place capital, The number one factor is the quality and experience of the management team. The second issue is the opportunity the asset class. But the third, and importantly, is the amount of dollars oriented and dedicated towards that asset class. The challenge at the larger firms is they generally can only go into very large pools of capital because they need to make that fund accessible across the entirety of their national sales organization. So they tend to chase exceptionally large pools of capital to go after private equity or real estate. You can find excellent institutional caliber investment managers with big four accountants and very experienced legal teams with proper custodianships and compliance, but the dollars targeting the opportunity set are much smaller, and therefore we think highly more attractive. And said differently, if I'm going to focus $300 million towards investing in apartment buildings in the Pacific Northwest... I think that's more effective than trying to target $3 billion doing exactly the same thing. So the art is to find exceptional teams pursuing a thoughtful strategy, but with the proper amount of dollars targeting that asset class. That's the differentiator.
1: Yeah, of course, no one wants to fight on, well, we're the, the lowest fee. There has to be more value. So in your case, other than the private investments, which seems to be a real specialty, what other services is i e q providing its clients outside of investments? Well, I'm glad you asked
3: because people think we are nothing but an old shop, and it's actually not the case at all. You've got a family office that is quite significant it's got all of the elements of what you'd expect in full family office with the exception of bill pay, which we don't do in house but which we partner with outside, and that means we we do the financial planning, we do the estate planning. We do liquidity analysis, which is often a big issue for private equity and venture capital folks. We do all the normal unwinding of, of and, and coming up with uh, strategies on reinvestment and unwinding thoughtfully within an estate plan, single stock positions that are highly appreciated. So that's typically an issue with all the tech C-suite folks.
1: Wow, that's pretty fascinating. That's something you can really touch and feel rather than a, a fund. That seems pretty exciting for your clients. So I'd love to just talk about how, There's three co CEOs. I've heard of two. I don't think I've seen three before. How does it work in practice and does it actually work? Like, how do you split the responsibilities?
2: Well, if you actually, if this was a video recording instead of an audio, you'd get it. I'm sitting here in a blazer and a suit like I'm on TV. Eric's got the loudest shirt I think I've ever seen and the funniest (laughs) shoes I've ever seen and his socks are a sight for sore eyes. Anyone who knows us knows that we're three entirely different personalities and that's got a lot of benefits, occasional challenges, but they're always overcome because we like and respect and challenge each other in a constructive way. Really, I think it's checks and balances. It's being in a partnership is incredibly difficult. You have to be emotionally wed to it. You have to believe your co-CEO or partner is going to be equally invested But if you actually have longevity of relationships, in our case, I've known Rob for 23 years. I've actually known Eric for 31 years. I've only worked with him for 15. You just have a lot of foundation from which to trust one another. And where the benefit is twofold. One is, believe me when I say this, Rob and Eric will take me places I never would have gone on my own, but also will on occasion check the two of them. So I think understanding each other's personalities Gently or not so gently pushing one another, but staying true to the same vision, making this a real legacy business that we hope will grow for generations and deliver world-class client-centric services is exactly where we're all centered. And so we have modestly different ways of getting there. We check and balance each other. But I think the benefit is in the end, it's a much better organization. It's more robust and there's greater opportunities for all kinds of personalities to work happily here. So I was just
3: going to add, I have kind of a different perspective, not disagreeing with Alan here, but just a different perspective. I've spent my entire career working inside of partnerships and having three CEOs is you just change the title and it all come together and make sense. You really have managing partners in a partnership. So the three of us are the managing partners in a partnership. While it is a company and runs like a company, it's not unlike any of the large uh, private equity firms. They'll often have more than one person that sits in that uh, management company and overseeing the uh, development of the firm. And in our cases, we sort of divide up naturally. If you think about the various components of growth and requirement for this business, our next chapter is going to be looking externally, bringing on advisory teams, acquiring RIAs, expanding geographically to key markets. That's a big job for one person that is at a senior level to oversee just that. Then there's always the important CEO role of keeping the trains on time and looking internally and making sure that people are properly compensated, that they are continuing to be challenged by their jobs and you add to them when they're not, and all the elements of just uh, running the operations of the business. And then there's a third that was really overseeing investments and making sure that everything we put on the platform is very well vetted and that the approach to underwriting any new investment is done with great care. I can't imagine one person overseeing all of that. It would be really challenging.
1: So then how do you make decisions? Maybe let's use an example that will kind of spearhead the the next segment. This is
3: simple. It's two out of three have to vote yes. We often have spirited disagreements. We often vote against each other. It is rarely... For two votes in a row, two people out of the three agreeing against the third person, it is a mosh pit. And I think that's the way that it should be. It is healthy, it is spirited, but we all end up disagreeing, but at the end of the day, we honor the vote.
1: I like it. So it sounds like it might be easier to have three than two. So maybe the next evolution is to have five co CEOs.
2: <laughs> Lewis, that depends if the one or the other two vote with me. They're not then
1: three is great. <laughs> there we go. So, um, yeah, I'd love to talk about your major private equity infusion or or transaction that was announced in the very beginning of 2023. So it was announced that IEQ took on an investment of an undisclosed amount and for an undisclosed percentage of the business from major private equity sponsor, Stonepoint. They were one of the early backers of Focus Financial and are a real powerhouse in the space. So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to raise capital at this point in time?
3: Let me take that, Lois, just because I came out of the private equity background, and and we all obviously were very collaborative in getting this to the finish line. It was about a six-month journey, and it was at the right time of our evolution. If you think of this in kind of software development terms, 1.0 is leaving and getting the former clients to come to the new platform, IEQ. 2.0 is ensuring that all of the brand recognition with the fund managers has been reestablished such that we can get fee breaks, we can get access, we can provide the investment experience that the clients want. And I'd say at the same time, you're scaling the business. You're putting in the rest of the infrastructure that you may not have fully got baked in the first 18 months. Then 3.0 is ensuring that you have set up the partnership to have generational transition. That means hiring the full head office, which for us, it was a very significant lift of senior people that were not part of the core team that came over. And we're now on kind of four data, which is, okay, you built the chassis. Now you're ready to add on advisors that are growth-minded, that uh, like having a low friction platform to utilize that can just get business done and has great investment options on the platform. So that, that is the next chapter. And so when you think about what that takes It's going to take opening offices around the country. It is going to take some dollars. As you know, we will compete with the bank bid of three times up front and maybe even a little bit more than that to buy books and bring them on board. And so without a balance sheet, you just really can't do a heck of a lot in the next chapter of growth.
2: Lewis, I I just want to add, there are a couple other motivational factors. First of all, Eric and Rob and I, the three co-CEOs, got tired of being a personal bank for the employees. The cost of living, particularly in California, is exceptionally high. And we have a number of high-achieving, exceptionally talented young professionals from the mid-20s to the early 40s who, frankly, couldn't afford a home. And we extended over a couple of years, I think, over 10 different personal loans to the point where it was... We were going to be regulated as a bank ourselves, apparently. That was a motivation. Secondly, it's great to talk about being an equity owner. It actually is meaningful when there's actually some dollar amount attributable to it. And not only did it make it real and a little bit self interested, it actually ties our most important employees even to the firm more because they recognize they got a good thing. And then, lastly, and importantly, having a sophisticated financier like Stone Point Capital forces us to be better, forces us to be disciplined, forces us to adapt best practices that we can learn from, from them, from their experiences with other service providers. So we don't pretend we know everything, far from it. This is a place where we encourage learning and we ourselves want to continue to evolving and getting better. And working with a expert Stone Point in the financial services industry they can keep us aware of best practices real time only ensures that we will be better at what we do in the future
1: that's such a good answer similar to your earlier comment about creating a why document when you started luminous capital seems like you came up with a why document for yourselves for for why taking on external capital of course you could have sold the whole business made a bunch of money probably hundred different funds could have bid for your time and and attention, but it was about finding the right partner to help you accomplish the right things. One more question, just the investment. And then I want to wrap up with just maybe having you elaborate on your advisor facing value proposition. So private equity, the, the knock on it is that there's going to be an exit. It's pretty much a sure thing that over a relatively short time period, the fund will seek liquidity and the business will be sold or there'll be some other type of event. How do you talk to advisors talking about joining you? How do you kind of think about that yourselves that we took on capital and now they're going to look for an exit and how do we reconcile keeping control of the business?
3: It's a great question. It's it's actually the elephant in the room question. I'm glad you asked it. So Alan and I and Rob have, there's no daylight between us and how we look at the business. We want this to be set up for generational transition to the folks here at IEQ that are 25 years old. So it's got to handle one or two or three iterations for that to occur. And so we don't want this to be a one and done, make money for the people at the top and leave all of our younger folks stranded without having equity in a business that they get to continue to control. So one of the reasons bringing Stone Point is all they do is invest in businesses that are people based and recurring revenue business models and what they handle is this transition it's actually why we pick them and if you think about the natural evolution you grow you'd sell to somebody well we don't want to do that we want to grow and actually keep independent there's now new technology in these gp continuity vehicles where we're inside of a young fund at stone point we can stay in that for the next x number of years seven eight years And then you simply roll to another fund that will be either at Stone Point or it will be at another private equity firm. But you keep yourself in the hands of private equity and it continues to ensure best practices, good board governance. And yet you re-incentivize all the people that are working with you to continue working hard because the whole concept of private equity is to ensure that there's an incentive package for the people that do the work. And so it will mean that we will have a requirement to roll a portion of our equity into the new company. It will mean that we probably have to create a new incentive pool on exiting from one vehicle to another vehicle. You have to do an equity refresh. So the point is, this kind of business is better done outside of banks, and therefore it's logical to continue to build the business we have kind of into the future. We want this to be our family office really for the rest of our lives.
1: I like it. So selling some equity today, it wasn't the first step in seeding control. It's kind of the opposite. It might be counterintuitive that instead of being forced to sell the business to a strategic buyer who'd buy the whole thing, this enables you to build a bigger business where then you can sell tranches along the way, but ultimately still keep the core of what makes the business special.
3: Well said. I mean, listen, the example here is creative planning. This is backed by uh, General Atlantic, and that's a giant business far larger than us similar space, and has been run outside of a bank for many, many years, and probably will be for many, many years in the future.
1: Great example. So let's, let's wrap it here, um, just in the interest of time. You mentioned that part of the reason for taking on a capital partner was to really spearhead the advisor acquisition or advisor recruitment strategy. So what's the advisor-facing value proposition? Put another way, why would an advisor opt to sell or partner with IEQ versus doing something on their own or joining one of your competitors?
2: Well, advisors have to think through where they want to work. Are they happy working in a suitability standard at a broker deal or a big firm that's got a variety of either goals that aren't fully in alignment with wealth management or regulatory impediments or other ancillary services and objectives that distract them from their core job? Or maybe they want to go into a hybrid model, which is some combination of broker-dealer and RIA. Or maybe they'd really like to be a fiduciary RIA with one objective, being in wealth management, which is what we are at IQ Capital. And it's kind of funny, when we started this business, uh, Lewis, out of First Republic in 2019, again, spending those 17 months, we were really, with intentionality, building this business to be a client-centric practice for us. We didn't even envision, honestly, consider acquiring or or partnering with other advisors. It turns out we built a pretty good business. We sort of say jokingly, built by advisors, run by advisors, for advisors. We, the CEOs, still have direct relationships and are trying to grow our respective client relationships, while at the same time, trying to be mentors and allow others to come over and likewise grow their business. I think this is a great place to work if you want to be at a fiduciary where you have one core business and you don't want to spend the 17 or 18 months it takes for you to independently build your business.
1: Sounds compelling to me. So I would say most advisors that are looking to transition um, are doing so because they're looking to grow or in some capacity looking to take their business to the next level. Can we dig in a bit into how IEQ can help someone grow faster than they could on their own? Absolutely. Again,
3: coming out of private equity, I look at this business, which I was not originally from until really 2008 when I joined Luminous. I look at it as a business model, and I was a little bit surprised at how this business works throughout the whole industry doesn't matter whether you're in a bank or you're in an RIA, uh, the vast majority, and I mean vast, vast majority of firms that I've seen have a similar model of putting a little umbrella over a series of franchisees and giving shared services, shared access, shared CFO reporting, shared compliance, uh, reporting for client assets, et cetera. But, But essentially, you're on your own and you'd have an advisor at the top of a pyramid who gets probably 80% of the total economics given to the team. And then you have relatively junior people that share 20%. That's the model. Well, if you think about that, as they build a book, you end up with clients wanting to call one person on that team, the advisor. So as you get to some number of households, 50, 60, 70, you're out of time. You never really invested in your people to make them competent enough to where your client was equally happy talking to people below the advisor. So what we've tried to do here is actually create a company where we solve that problem. So when advisory teams come over, they get their life back. The reporting and all of the interactions that used to take a lot of time, just opening a client household account in many banks takes a month. We open 99% in one day, one calendar day. So, if you can do all the normal business functions quickly and without just a hassle, you end up with a very different experience for the advisor. We have a 10 person business development team that helps advisors do all the basic research around who would be logical prospects for them given their current client network and relationship network. Well, that just saves them loads of time. So, it's these kinds of of kernels of value. That I think you're not going to find inside of big banks because big banks have more of a competitive system, and many RIAs just don't have the resources to
2: invest in supporting everybody that joins. You know, Eric, if I can just elaborate and you touched on all this, I think it's three simple things: software and systems, dedicated business development effort, and a culture of collaboration. So what I mean by that is we have built up the system such that we free up a lot of people's time. We have clean, easy, thoughtful reporting. We've talked about how we persistently will allow uh, our advisors to communicate with their underlying clients as frequently as they want, as long as it's compliant in a way that mitigates a lot of the typical means by which it bogs down in an advisor's time. Secondly, as Eric alluded to, we actually have currently eight full-time people dedicated to business development. They help support advisors identify relationships, spider webs of networks of other key influencers, and actually hand to the advisors recommendations. And then lastly, and arguably most importantly, this is a culture of collaboration, not competition. An example, one of our advisors is talking to a significant family office. They have a very large concentrated stock position. And the advisor sent an email to me saying, gosh, I'm going to face this opportunity. Have you done this before? What might you do? Not only did I say I might do the following. I copied nine other advisors here, three of whom have already sent back examples of similar responses to an inquiry like that. I'll be joining the advisor at the meeting. I have no economic incentive whatsoever ever to revenue share in any way. I'm an equity owner. If that advisor is able to successfully convert that family also into client, I benefit and all those other nine advisors who replied benefit and everybody at this firm benefits because we're all equity owners. The moment you change the culture is the moment you create a growth environment for an advisor. So between better systems, dedicated business development people, and a collaborative effort where people aren't trying to take away what you're generating, but actually augment it, that's what leads to growth.
1: Love it. Very clear. Eric and Alan, really appreciate you spending so much time with us. I think I have another probably two hours to go and asking you guys questions. Maybe we'll continue offline or kind of get an update going, but it was fascinating just to hear your your journey your kind of your, your pit stops from goldman to merrill to luminous to first republic to now ieq and really excited in the future to talk about ieq 6.0 you're at 5.0 now but just to continue watching you develop thank you Lewis. appreciate it
0: it's stories like these from trailblazers who forge new paths and continue to make their mark on the industry that are most illustrative but it's their core concepts around growth, culture, and building a business for advisors by advisors that serve as a resounding takeaway. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way of staying informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. You can feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973 476 8578, which is my cell, or my email, mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and a review. It will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.